Hello, this is Brian Croft. I'm the senior pastor of Auburndale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm also the founder of Practical Shepherding. A few years ago, I started a blog about the daily work of a pastor, and that blog has grown into the various ministries of Practical Shepherding. We want to come alongside pastors who are laboring in the trenches of pastoral ministry to encourage and to equip them. And that's why we started this podcast, Trench Talk. So we hope this podcast encourages you and your church as we continue our conversation about the pastor's work. To find out more about Practical Shepherding, visit our website at practicalshepherding.com or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Welcome to Trench Talk. This is a, a podcast of Practical Shepherding and I'm your host Brian Croft, the founder of Practical Shepherding and I'm hosting today because I'm on location in Fremont, Nebraska. I've been doing some ministry down here in the last weekend. And I'm here with Kyle McClellan, who is the pastor of Grace Church in Fremont, Nebraska. Um, we are doing a couple podcasts here in Nebraska because I'm wanting to talk to some good friends of mine who have a lot of wisdom from pastoral ministry from all of their years of pastoral ministry. And so I'm sitting here with Kyle, who's been a dear friend for uh, the last 15 years or so. Uh, we knew each other in Louisville, and Kyle's going to tell a little bit about his story uh, in a little bit. But he's a pastor of Grace Church. Uh, he did his education at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, his Master of Divinity. He's currently working on his D-Men at Beeson Divinity. I say that right? And um, it's been a real joy to be here with his family, uh, his wife Amy, and he's got two sweet kids, his daughter uh, Gabrielle and his son Nathaniel. So, Kyle, thanks for uh, joining me on this uh, podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, and welcome to scenic, beautiful downtown historic Fremont, Nebraska. We are in a, a nice place. We can we can look out the window and see the Schweizer's department store right across the street. So it's it's uh, it's good stuff. But thanks thanks for coming all the way to, to Nebraska. So I think the most pressing question that's on everybody's minds, they know I'm talking to you now, is. Will Nebraska football return to its glory days with this new coach that is, they have they just hired? So your thoughts? We we have hope. We have great hopes under Mike Riley. Um, and if nothing else, we're just hoping that the entire nation can't count how many times he's dropping f bombs on the sideline if if a call doesn't go our way. So if nothing else, Mike will be an improvement. Uh, this seems to be a great guy. He's he's actually a believer. Um, has a really solid testimony. Seems to be a really good guy. Teacher, coach, understands the game, teaches the game well. And I have a, a good friend who is a sports writer for one of our local papers. And he'll say the biggest difference is you can tell these are adults sort of running the program. When you call them, they call you back. They actually disclose information that might be pertinent. It just seems to be a class outfit. So we'll see. We got to play Ohio State and. A bunch of teams in the Big Ten are pretty stout, so we'll, we'll see how it works. Well, I wanted to ask you about that first, so we made distraction yeah, for everybody, yeah, no, that's, knowing that's, that's what they wanted to first hear from you. But it is all the all the fans in SEC land are really concerned about Big Ten football since we kicked your fanny in the national championship game. But I digress. Yeah, so it's probably a good time to transition it is, on that. It is not only offended all your listeners in the South. That's right. Yeah. So you know. Kyle, you and I have been friends for 15 years, and you've been through a lot of ministry. I have. We walked through a lot of it together. You know, some of you probably re, uh, recognize his name from having written a book in our resources for practical shepherding called Mia Culpa, where Kyle addresses some of the lessons he learned through some of the really hard years of ministry that he that he endured. We're going to get to that book later, uh, potentially in another podcast. We're going to do a couple uh, parts, I think, to this one with Kyle. But before we go there, I want to ask Kyle about his just his his life, his ministry, what led to his calling, and you know where he went to school, and uh, what he was thinking as he trying to think through his calling, and then for him to walk through just a summary first of of the last I don't know 15, 20 years of ministry. So Kyle, can you give us a summary of uh, your ministry in just a few minutes? Well, Brian, I was born. You were, and that was probably not a small child. No, uh, no, no. I was, but I was early, so that made up for it. Um, no, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and grew up primarily here in Nebraska. Was born in actually my my dad was in graduate school at the University of Iowa, and my parents had two children a year and a week apart while my dad was in grad school. 
So I don't know about the planning at that point, but it was in the 70s, and so, you know, anything goes. Yeah. Um, but grew, grew up in a Christian home, had the privilege of uh, growing up in a household where we, we were church all the time. It was an expectation. It wasn't It wasn't like a realistic burdensome thing. It's just what we did. We went to church, went to vacation Bible school, went to the Wednesday night stuff at our the children's stuff at our church. I don't remember having family devotions, but I don't necessarily know anybody who did. But very much grew up in a household of faith. Um, you know, unfortunately grew up listening to the Gaither's, the Gaither Trio, I Have a Promise album, which scarred me deeply, but did, you know, at least teach you songs like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, it does explain your musical it, it really does. It really does. It, ex- it explains a whole lot of my hairband affinity, having listened to the Gators. That's right. Um, but was just really blessed to grow up with parents who, you know, divorce was never an option. And we knew that. I had friends who, unfortunately, went through that. And so we just kind of grew up in this sort of normal household. Mom and Dad loved each other. They were committed to one another. Going to church. I'm the oldest of four. Um, you'd think after getting it right the first time they would have just stopped, but apparently not, mm-hmm. not so much. Um, but interestingly enough, so, so grew up in this Christian household and was baptized when I was 12 at the Wesleyan church that we were attending in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, grew up in the Sand Hills, and didn't have the category for it then that I do now, which was, it was basically a covenant baptism. I wasn't I hadn't been converted, but I did want to publicly identify with with Jesus, with the church, but was actually converted um, my senior year in high school at a Mexican restaurant um, hmm. about 20 miles from here. Actually, had gone to a uh, gone to a hockey game with we had a new youth minister went to a hockey game with a couple friends of mine and our youth minister, and we were sitting there after the game eating Mexican food and I was converted. Hmm. So, so we're sitting where you grew up, party where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, we moved, so we grew up uh, literally, I mean, it was two and a half hours to the nearest McDonald's from where we grew up. And then right before my senior year in high school, my dad got promoted, and we moved here to Fremont. And you have to understand, the town I grew up in was about uh, 1,200 people. And so we moved from a town of 1,200 to a town of 25,000. And I know for pretty much everybody else, 25,000 is not that big a deal, but here in Nebraska, that's the fifth largest city in the state. So it would be like, um, hey, I was living in Milwaukee and now I'm in New York City. Mm. It, it was a, quite a bit of culture shock. It was, it was not a great time in my life. Um, the, the sort of social structure that I grew up in and, and kind of knowing where I fit in the pecking order, all that was going um, and And... Had grown up, my dad. My dad had been a coach for part of, of the time that I was growing up, and so loved football, loved all sports, but particularly football. And so, from the time we moved to when I got converted, football really was my—I mean, that was my idol. That was my god. That's what I pursued, and it was not a particularly great time in my life, academically, spiritually. It was great athletically, uh, morally. All those things were sort of not good. Um, which is one of the reasons why I said I would never come back to my to my hometown. So I, I, I got out, I mean, you know, we say that Fremont's sort of like a Springsteen song, right? You, you, you're either stuck or you figure out a way to get out. And so uh, academics and athletics, Lord's use that as probably more than anything else to bring good things into my life. So where'd you go to school from there? I went, so I, just, I was looking around, so so I get converted, well, the summer before, I was called to ministry before I actually got saved. Went on a short-term mission trip to Puerto Rico with our church, and uh, one of our sister churches in Omaha, it was, it was at a Christian Missionary Alliance church at that point. I'm kind of a Heinz 57 mutt in terms of denominational background. And on that mission trip, um, just really sensed the Lord calling me to ministry and talked to my youth pastor who was uh, very wise and gave really good counsel in that regard. And so I, 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 had, been a, I had been a good, uh, actually a very good high school football player, had some options in terms of where I wanted to go to school. And like, like every kid in Nebraska, 
wanted to walk on and wanted to, wanted to play in Nebraska. What position did you play in football? Um, well, so in high school, I, I was an offensive lineman and uh, played some linebacker on defense. Uh, bigger schools, D1 schools, I would have been a fullback or a deep snapper. I went to Taylor University. I had narrowed it down. My college choices came down to Wheaton College and Taylor University because they were both serious academically. Um, they both had pretty stout Bible departments, and they were both serious about football. Um, we had a couple of denominational schools that played at playing football, and I didn't want to do that. And so uh, we, we took a visit, we took some visits uh, the winter of my senior year, and ironically, it was because Taylor was in the middle of a cornfield and felt pretty homey for me that, uh, that I ended up going to Taylor University, which really was, I mean, the Lord was just really gracious in that. Uh, Taylor was a great place to go to school, made some, some lasting friendships, uh, most notably the guy who was my advisor when I declared as a Bible major, a uh, man named Paul House, and uh, that's been a, now a 30-year ongoing friendship and relationship. And so I, I, I can, I, that's the funny thing is even in the midst of just getting my brains beating, I can look back and see God's graciousness and His providence and His leading all along the way. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. So, so I went to Taylor, crammed uh, four years into about five and a half, um, was looking for, I, I knew I was going to go to seminary because uh, I've grown up hearing different pastors and the guys that could really sort of deal well in the text and actually had something to say. It seemed like the commonality was those guys had gone to seminary. So you were already sent, so you were already dealing with a column in Nigeria yeah. Taylor. Yeah, well and that's that was the that again, that was kind of the deciding factor. I want to go to a Christian college that's serious academically where I can major in Bible because I mean, if this is what the Lord's calling me to, then I, I probably need to prepare for that. And and the fact that it offered me a chance to keep playing football was just I wish I could say it was gravy, but at that, when you're 18 years old, that's that's the big part. The academics were just kind of an added bonus and, at and, that point. And for those who are listening to the podcast, so people are listening, and they, there's no video with this. So it's just important that you pick up on, on the subtleties of you went from the O-line to defensive end. Right. In position. Right. So just so you know, Kyle is not 5'7 and weighs about go 5. No. Okay, so no. this is a good-sized man uh, sitting before me, and so you can imagine... Uh, having to go to college and playing in these particular positions. Right. Well, and I went, and then, okay, so this is, this is, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's still president at this point in time. And so, you know, I, I would, I played the offensive line in high school with 200 pounds. Okay. And I wasn't huge, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't small either. And so that was, you know, one, one of the reasons to look at a position change and move around was there just weren't a whole lot of 200 pound. Now, by the time I graduated, I was a, a rather hefty. I mean, I, I matured some and filled out a weight 240, which I'd love to weigh again as opposed to the 285. <laughs> Actually, 286.7 that I took the scale out this morning. You don't have to bury your soul. Well, not even here, but that's okay. No, it's, it's, I, I, think, I think your listeners deserve honesty and truth. An authentic man in the force. We, we are into authenticity, mm-hmm. baby. So, so from Taylor, then, did you go directly to seminary? Yeah, so I, I, again, Paul House encouraged me. So I was looking at where I was going to go to seminary, and, and Taylor is not as expensive as it is now. But, you know, when you pass on going to South Dakota State University on a, on a scholarship and instead pay for a private evangelical Christian college, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's some sticker shock involved with that. Yeah. And so as I was thinking about seminaries, one of the things that was very much in my mind, because I knew how much student that I had, was where can I go that's not going to cost me an arm and a leg and it is actually sort of affordable to live? And I was looking at Trinity, and Trinity, the sticker wasn't necessarily bad, but you had to live in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the cost of living was, was just, compared to Upland, Indiana, and compared to Fremont, Nebraska, the cost of living was insane. Right. The same thing with Gordon-Conwell, like pretty hard at Gordon-Conwell, a little more expensive, but again, the cost of living is ridiculous. At that point in time, as I was thinking about seminaries, Paul, who was a graduate of, uh, he was an alum of Southern Seminary, said, hey, this this friend of mine, 
just got voted as the president of Southern Seminary. His name's Al Moore. He's young, he's 33, wears glasses, looks like, you know... Not a football player? No, no, he's, he's yeah. not... Uh, he, 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 he's not wearing an athletic cut suit at that point, right? And uh, But he said, listen, one of the things I, I really appreciated about Taylor, uh, so the Bible department made sure that you understood both sides of the coin from a scholarship standpoint. They were staunchly evangelical, but I went to Taylor knowing about higher criticism. I went to Taylor knowing about uh, source criticism, redaction criticism. I sort of knew both sides of the coin. Uh, we had read some bar. Uh, we had actually had Ada Linneman, who was a, had, had been a student of the kind of higher critical school who later became evangelical. She came in lecture. I had two years of, of Greek under my belt, so I, I clapped out of a whole bunch of Greek when I went to Southern. So I felt like I was really well prepared at Taylor, and Paul's point was, look, there won't be a whole lot of evangelical professors. There won't be a whole lot of evangelical students, but they're going to need guys who know both sides of the coin, who can come in and sort of hold their own. And so I went to Southern. I got to go this semester after Dr. Miller started. I started in January of 1994. I'm, I'm standing in the orientation line, and then I think now orientation is a pretty big deal. It's like a, like a week-long event at Southern. Then it was like two days. And I'm standing in line, and this tall, gangly guy is behind me, uh, a fellow named Jimmy Scroggins. And Jimmy shakes my hand and says, Hey, I'm Jimmy Scroggins, First Baptist Jacksonville. Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Vines are my pastors. So I look at him and I'm like, Oh, well, I'm Kyle McClellan, Fremont Alliance. Phil Ronson is my pastor. And he looks at me and goes, Brother, I never heard of that guy. And I look at him and I'm like, Buddy, I never heard of those guys. So that, that immediately, that was, that was our introduction. It became a really crucial friendship because Jimmy understood how the SBC worked and he understood kind of the politics and, and I, I had no idea of the conservative resurgence I had no idea why Al's coming was such a big deal I, I just, the inner workings and machinations of the SBC were an entirely new planet to me, I, I had no idea what was going on So this is an important piece of your story because in Dr. Moeller's early years it was a very different oh, seminary experience so can you talk a little bit about even as you're, how did Southern help prepare you for ministry, and how did Southern not prepare you with the in the midst of the uniqueness of that season there? Yeah. Um, well, I, I will say this: one of the really interesting things about Southern in the, in the when I was there was you figured out who your friends were pretty quickly, and it wasn't that they were friends because you know you're both LSU football fans or or you know. You, you have a certain affinity uh, because you're all from the same part of the country. The two guys that I, the two students that I became the closest with in my time, so were Jimmy Scroggins and then uh, Greg Thornberry, who's now the president of the King's College in New York City. Uh, Thornberry was from uh, rural Pennsylvania, uh, went to Messiah College. Jimmy was from Jacksonville, hmm. and so clearly there wasn't a, there wasn't like this sort of regional affinity. But what we did have in common was we believed that the Bible was true. We held the full authority and inerrancy of the scriptures. And we were either, you, you can put it either way. I think Thornberry was articulate enough. I think Scroggins and I were just honorary enough and stubborn enough that we were going to give voice to that evangelical viewpoint in class. And so how I actually met Dr. Muller for the first time was I was taking a class uh, land of the Old Testament prophets is an archaeology class. The professor made the statement that we view archaeology to correct mistakes that we find in the biblical texts. Hmm. Not knowing any better, I raised my hand to challenge his presuppositions and give voice to that, and I'm asked to leave the class. And as I'm heading down the hallway, uh, Jimmy was actually in the New Testament intro class, and he had been asked to leave as well. And so we're walking down the hallway, and Jimmy says, "Well, you know, Matt, you know, Doctor Lindsay, Doctor Vines, you send me down here and get kicked out of class, brother. I want to go see Doctor Muller." And I'm thinking, "Do you don't just walk into the president's office, right? You don't just knock on the door and be like, hey, Al, what's up? How's Mary and the kids?'" But that's exactly what that's exactly what Jimmy did, and so that's how I met Doctor Muller. Um, 
house had told me when I was coming. And so early on, I mean, you, you could count on one hand the number of students at Southern who believed in the full authority and inerrancy of the Bible and were willing to articulate it in class. But we had a guy uh, who was a friend of ours, I won't, won't say his name, but he had gone to a Baptist college to do his undergraduate work. Really nice guy, loved Jesus, loved the Lord, was a conservative. And we would, we would at one point we all ended up in a class together. We would say to him, now listen, this is how this conversation is gonna go. And at this point, this is what we need you to say. We need you to kind of chime in. So it's not just Scroggins and I looking like a couple lepers who are, you know, just kind of Jesus freaks. And the conversation would go just like we said, it would get to that point, and our friend would just be silent. I mean, he just he would just sort of sit there, and you could see, man, he was just sweat. I mean, the guy's shirt was just grunge. He was just sweating, and just at that point, just wasn't going to enter the fray. And and afterwards, we we just wore him out. We got like, come on, we were right. We had it set up on the key for you. Yeah. We told you what to say. He's like, oh brother, man, hey, listen, I prayed for you. Oh man, I prayed for you. And I, I think, I think I just lost some spirit, man. I just, I just didn't, I, I don't know, man. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll do it next time. After about four times, we were like, no, no, we're, you're good. So we, we sort of, we would, we would talk as kind of evangelical conservative students, Thornberry and, and Scroggins and I, and there just weren't a whole lot of those other guys on campus. So what, with this environment you're in, obviously there's some good things about you're going to quickly realize what you believe and what you don't. Right. Uh, and but in that environment, there are obviously some good things that were prepared for. So yeah. What are some of the things that why that was not helpful as you look as you then entered into pastoral? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I, I let me say this: one of the good things about Southern in those days, if you came with some sort of prior training and you knew where to look. It was, you did get both sides of the coin theologically. So, you know, you're reading Bart, you're reading Wolfgang Pondenberg, and then on your own, you got to go find Carl Henry. You've got to go read something that's the opposite side of the coin. Uh, not just because academically you want to be more rounded, but because these are engaging, thoughtful people who are presenting a side of the coin that you hadn't heard. I mean, you'd heard it. You just had never heard it put in that particular way. I, well, the first half of my theology class was with a man named Frank Tupper. Uh, Tupper later resigned because he was going to run up on heresy charges for a book that he wrote. And I loved Frank Tupper. Uh, Frank was a really engaging lecturer. He was very thoughtful. He was very kind. And there were times in class in which I'm just getting hammered as a wife beater and a slaveholder and a woman hater, and in spite of the fact I'm not married at this point. And, and Tupper would actually say, now, now hold on. If you grant Kyle his presuppositions, which I doubt, but if you grant him his presuppositions, he's actually being really consistent. Hmm. Whereas, I understand why you're upset with him, but theologically, the argument you're making isn't quite as consistent. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I loved Frank. I mourned uh, when he was, was fired. I mean, I understood why it was going on. But here was still a man who taught me a lot. He modeled how to do theology. He really thought theology was about how you live your life. And I, I, I to this day, love and appreciate and am grateful for Frank Tupper for that. Uh, but I, at the same time, I also understood yeah, listen, he can't say. You know, he there's I don't know how he signed the abstract of principles and didn't sort of burst into flames when, you know, immediately upon the pen and the paper. Mm -hmm. But so you, you, you really did have to read both sides of the coin. Because sort of like um, in, in Ned Stonehouse's biography of Machen, Machen came really close to sort of going to the dark side theologically. Because here are these winsome articulate, bright, really kind and gracious people who are nonetheless putting forward a vision of theology that just isn't orthodox. But they're so gracious and they're so engaging and they're so thoughtful. 
that you really do come within a hair's breadth of trading a blue lightsaber for a red lightsaber and going to go the dark side. Mm -hmm. And so I was driven to Carl Henry. I was driven to, uh, that's when I read the Institutes for the first time. I was driven to all that because it wasn't just, I want to be well-rounded intellectually and academically, but it really was, okay, if I'm, if I'm not going to lose my faith, as I received it from my parents, as I received it from godly, faithful people, as I was trained at Taylor, and I'm not going to lose my faith, I've got to read these guys. So, in that sense, it really was kind of a unique education. I had Tupper for the first half of theology, I had Danny Aiken for the second half. Mm -hmm. You could not get two more different right. uh, guys teaching you theology if you tried. Yeah. And, and so sort of my, some of my theological schizophrenia, I think, maybe comes from, comes from being trained, trained in that way. The bad thing was, or one of the bad things, was there was, there was a tremendous amount of trauma on campus. It divided the student body, unfortunately. I mean, it needed to. But nonetheless, you don't, you don't want to be sitting in a class uh, knowing that the person sitting across the road from you showed up to class with guns loaded because they were just going to bury you that day. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could say that I was immune from that, but no, I, I, it was a, there was this kind of mutual animosity and this sort of intellectual one-upsmanship. And I, I uh, always liked contact sports, uh, didn't mind conflict, still don't, unfortunately. And so I, I came to relish this sort of I'm coming in, I got both guns loaded, the safeties are off, hmm. and, and I, I got the speed reloading magazines ready to go, baby. So this this environment in Southern, you felt even just encouraged you to come ready to fight. Oh yeah, it, it became really combative. And it, so it didn't necessarily, there's a difference between being an argumentative, you know what, um, who just wants to argue for the sake of arguing and guarding the truth. Yeah. And sometimes it's a really fine line. Right. And so, and, and the other piece of it is, you know, you're 25, 26 years old. Having the discernment and maturity to know where the line is between I'm just being an argumentative, you know what, and I'm guarding the truth, you, you're not necessarily wise enough to discern where that line is. Mm -hmm. And so under the auspices of I'm guarding the truth, this is a fight that needs to be had, I am, I am living out of Jude's admonition to contend once and for all for the faith, delivered the saints. Mm -hmm. And, or contend for the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints. That's what I thought I was doing. Yeah. Yes, but also sort of crossed that, didn't just cross the line, sort of triple jumped over the line yeah. and, and found myself just being really, really argumentative. And that's, that's just not, that's not conducive then to be a good shepherd in a local church setting. It might serve you well in the life in the academy, but it doesn't serve you well in the life of the local church. Let's transition there. So from Southern, you then immediately went to pastor your first church. Talk, talk me through just in general, like the next 10 years. Yeah. Because yeah, I knew pastoring several churches, just kind of give some summary to those Yeah, so well, when I was in college, I was a youth minister at a little American Baptist church in Montpelier, Indiana. Super sweet people. They were really kind to me. Um, gave me opportunities to preach, probably more so than they should have. And then when I was in seminary, I had two ministry positions. I was on staff at a, uh, a church right around from me, Carlisle Avenue Baptist Church, right there on the boulevard. And was there for a season, and then on weekends, pastored the Orville Baptist Church in Henry County, in Kentucky. Uh, also, then I was there for a time, and then I think right after I came, Jason Meyer, who succeeded John Piper right. at Bethlehem. Jason was also at the Orville Baptist Church. So, Orville has had a long and prestigious uh, history of. of Student pastors. Mm. Well, they've had Jason anyway, and then they've they've had me. Um, so I, I did that, and then it took a while. I mean, I I had been out of seminary. I was serving as the assistant archivist. Amy and I were living in the guest house on campus, and I was I was preaching on weekends. And I took my first church. I I had been out of school for about nine months before I found a, a full time calling. Okay. 
and I followed the founding pastor at a church just outside of Austin, Texas. I lasted 18 months, wow. and that was about nine months too long. Hmm. I made a lot of first church mistakes. Uh, following the founding guy is never easy. Hmm. Uh, they really, I think in retrospect, and some of the folks that I still talk to from that church, they would agree that they probably should not have been getting a guy right out of center. They needed a guy with a little more experience, a little more wisdom. Um, so we were there. Our daughter was born there. She is a Texan. Uh, it's the only place I've ever lived where on her birth certificate. The birth certificate says, congratulations on the birth of your new Texan. Nice. And so we would joke, we should have been appointed by the International Mission Board to go pastor in, in Texas. So food was great. People were lovely for the most part. But boy, the, the ministry was just, uh, that was a really long, hard 18 months. We're going to come back to some of those things. Right. Uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit. So from there, 18 months. From there, from there so 18 months there. So then we came back to the Louisville area. Uh, like, did you have a gap between that church? Yeah, and yeah. So there were about three months uh, between um, pitching a fit and resigning on a Wednesday night in front of God, Jesus, and the whole congregation. Mm. Just really acted like a diva. Mm. Uh, so I needed to do something. So I worked. There was a there was a brick plant right outside of uh, of Elgin, Texas, where we live. And so that whole summer I spent. Uh, working in the, in the brick plant, I, I worked. Mm-hmm. In, I worked in the grinding pit, huh. where uh, you know chunks of rock or whatever would come in, and they'd be ground up, and it would go through these little mesh screens, and then you would uh, it would go into where they'd press the bricks. It was regularly about 115 degrees, and, wow. and uh, yeah, because the, the the grind pan was was uh, steam driven, mm-hmm. so it was it was a lovely lovely time. Uh, of, of life, but the Lord was faithful in that. Um, from there, you went. From there, we came back. We came back to the Louisville area, um, which is when you and I met. Right. And so, pastored a, 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 a Southern Baptist church in Fairdale, Kentucky, and uh, that was three years. And then um, we we had come to a mutual agreement that I needed to find some somewhere else to go. After three years, right? After okay. three years. Now I had, I had some friends in the church and folks who come along and said, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's fight this. Let's let's." But at that point, uh, I was more than willing to fight, but I think my fight instinct was largely directed in areas that weren't necessarily helpful. Mm-hmm. We had two young kids. And I thought, no, you know what? I just, I, let's just, let's just do something different. So from there, where did you go? From there, I went to Lexington, Kentucky. So this is now my third Southern Baptist Church, and at that point, about five years. Okay. So I was, uh, we were in Lexington. Um, it was a church that kind of up and down, had a history of two or three pastors. Mm-hmm. My predecessor had been there, I think, seven years or eight years. And in talking to him, he would tell you. Uh, the last five were just, it was just grinding. How long? They had wanted him gone, and he was just stubborn enough that he had to give me the opportunity. So how long did you stay there? Three years. So then what happened from there? So then I, I, I resigned from there, and at that point we knew, uh, you know, we, we wanted to stay in pastoral ministry. We felt like the Lord was calling us out of ministry. But we knew that um, denominationally and from a quality standpoint, the SBC just was not, it wasn't a good fit. It wasn't the SBC's fault. I'm just a really rotten congregational governor and pastor. Yeah, for that kind of quality, it's just not, uh, it's not a good fit for me. And so we started looking around and thinking about, okay, well, where, what denomination do we want to go to? I have some friends who are Anglican. We went and visited an Anglican church. The first week after I resigned, and the smells and the bells and the communion and the real wine and the whole thing. I thought my poor Southern Baptist wife, maybe grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I, I thought her head was going to explode. That was just not, she just was not ready. That's a, it's, it's, you know, it's, from Nashville to Canterbury is a pretty dang big leap. Mm-hmm. And it was just one she was just not ready to make. Yeah. Uh, I was, 
you know, as, as a five course, had one went to silence rise and incense fall, and I was, was was ready to go. But thankfully, she she was not. There was a a very healthy PCA church in Lexington. They had a Christian school. We liked the school. Ironically, our children never went there. But it was a church she wanted to go visit. They had just brought in a new pastor. His name was John Sartell. And so we went. I remember the very first week we went, a, a young woman by the name of Lucy Holt. Lucy was about 12. She was making her public profession of faith. She had been baptized as an infant and was now professing the faith of her parents to be her own. And John stood up and asked her questions. And I remember turning my life just dumbfounded. And I said, you know what, I have deacons that could not articulate the gospel as clearly or as plainly as that 12-year-old girl can. And Amy loved the fact that because of the covenant understanding, Sunday school is a very, very, there's a very different purpose for Sunday school in the PCA church than there is in a Southern Baptist church. The goal of Sunday school in a PCA church is not necessarily evangelistic, right? We're not trying to get your Sunday to pray the sinner's prayer. And the curriculum isn't geared towards sort of getting them saved in the first place. The curriculum is geared towards teaching them the actual content of the Bible and making sure they do understand some, um, they understand the Christian faith. They're, they're, they're being catechized. They're using uh, the catechism as part of the curriculum, as part of the instruction, so that when your kid, by God's grace, does make a public profession of faith, they actually know what they're professing beyond, well, I don't really want to go to hell. I want mom and dad to be happy with me. And so, therefore, I've given mental assent to the gospel. Now, it's a very, very different goal. And this church is uh, obviously three churches in what's you know eight years or so. So you all had to have been pretty beat up and battered. So how did this church um, play a, a key role in just caring for you and your family, helping you? They did. Yeah. So I knew. I mean, I knew we were done in the SBC. A very good, a good friend of ours, yeah. uh, Tom Helms, who Tom, Tommy, and I were on staff together at Carlisle Avenue. Uh, he had been in, in the president's office at Southern, and we just had a very honest, very frank conversation in which I just said, hey, tell me, I think I'm done in the SBC, and he said, yeah, you're, you're done. Yeah. You're done. And I I appreciate, I knew, because he was a friend, I knew he loved and cared for our family, and, we, and I knew he wasn't trying to be mean. He just at that point was saying, what I sensed was probably true. And, and you've had life with him, so you know, like, Tommy is the SBC. Yeah, yeah. And he is the incarnation of, of the SBC, and so I was thankful for that. And so we went to Taste Creek. Yeah, I was feeling pretty beat up, pretty battered. And on the way out, I just said to the pastor, because a, a, a good friend of mine, an older pastor friend of mine, had said, hey, listen, you need to find an older pastor who's not in your tradition to help you sort of process this. Hmm. You at least need to know the color and the number of the bus that just ran over you. Right. Don't be in a hurry on that. Figure out what you got to do to make a living. But you, need, you really need to process this and you need to get some sense of what's going on. And so I took a job. I had had four different jobs in about a year period. I, I for about three weeks I was at Starbucks. And you know the 5 a.m. shift at Starbucks really does make you rethink your sort of vocational priorities. Right. Then I worked at Amazon. In their call center, in their warehouse, I was a picker. Uh, so, looking at all these really cool books that other people were buying and ordering, and then I got to box them up and ship them to them, um, and did that for a while, and then drove a. Drove a um, actually, you know, then I, I, I sold suits for a time at SK, uh, then they went out of business, and then I, I like the whole company just went bankrupt. And so, well, sorry. Yeah. So then I drove a water truck. There was a, a local business in Lexington that specialized in bottled water. And so if you have a water cooler in your home, we would make those kind of deliveries. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got a I got a CDL so that I could drive a, a dual axle. Uh, you got that going for you. Delivery truck, yeah. So I got, I got that. Six weeks ago, I didn't know how to jump up. Now thanks to the American School of Truck Driving, I had an exciting career. Yeah, so that's what I was doing. You know, I, I had this I had this image in my head of one time I visited you 
when you were in Lexington, you were at Cage Creek, you had just, you had not long resigned, you were working at Amazon, I, I was down there for some, a certain reason, and I was singing with you, and I have this, this snapshot in my mind of, of knowing you and, and the different places you had been, you're, you're putting your tennis shoes on, explaining to you how many miles you walk every day at Amazon, and on the, on the table signature was your Bible and a book that in detail explained the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I remember yeah. thinking, my friend is in transition as we speak in a pretty serious way. Yeah, there was one of, one of the issues I got tired of was so when I was at Taylor, I, I read John Piper's Desire of God. It was a required textbook, and that that carpet bomb, whatever sort of theological landscape I thought I had, and I knew for a long time. I grew up in largely sort of revivalistic Armenian churches. That would affirm God's sovereignty, all with the exception of this one issue. God's sovereign over everything except whether or not you come to faith in Christ. And then once you do, basically God's beholden to you. And so once you make the decision, now God is obligated to see your decision through the very end. And even as a smart aleck, 16-year-old who was more interested in charities than he was, you know, sort of the book of Colossians, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. It just, it just Something about that just didn't jive. And so, go to Taylor, I read Desire of God, blows everything up. And I remember thinking, okay, but how would you preach this? And so, by God's grace, we actually found, my sister and I were trying to find a Christian Lecture Alliance church in Muncie, Indiana. And this is before smartphones and before Al Gore and the internet, right? So, we had, we had phone book directions, and we had actually torn a map of Muncie out of the phone book. And we, we just weren't finding the Alliance Church. Well, we had driven past this Presbyterian church like three different times trying to find where we were going. And finally, we're like, okay, we gotta go to somewhere. Let's pull in and let's go there. And the pastor was in Westminster uh, Presbyterian in Lucenia. The pastor was a man named Petrus Rufus. And so here I am, I got this, I have this sort of Piper Calvinism in my head. I'm wondering how in the world would you preach it? And I heard Petrus preach. And that's when the sort of light went on. Oh, that's that's how you do it. And so I went to Southern, very much convinced God is sovereign in salvation, and sort of working out then the implications of that, not just in terms of soteriology, but in terms of how one views all of all of life. So the you know, the Kuiper deal, there's not one inch of my life that we throw, one inch of operation in which Jesus does not lay his hands and say, This is mine. So I'm trying to figure all that out. I'm not doing a very good job of it, but I'm trying to figure it out. And so, got involved with the Founders Movement when I was when I was in Southern. Uh, Mark Dever came and actually did a summer term, taught a class on Edwards, and I was man, that was that was like crack mm-hmm. to me. I mean, that was that was amazing. Hearing what Mark was doing at Capitol Hill, I was a part of the first weekender in Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and so came out of seminary, committed to local church ministry, and committed to at that point. Southern Baptists would call it the Doctrines of Grace. And the first church I went to, they were a quote-unquote Reformed Baptist church, and they wanted they wanted the Doctrines of Grace. The other two churches, not so much the case. I mean, I, I sort of had to be very careful about what I said, and I knew that at a certain point, uh, you know, Calvinism was still really a, it was a fireable offense at that point in the Right. Particularly in the Kentucky Baptist Convention, yeah. KBC was not was not uh, Calvinistic or Reformed. I don't want to put it in any way, shape, or form. And I just got really weary of having to defend how I what I understood the Bible to teach in terms of how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. That it wasn't if it has to be, it's up to me. I'm dead in my sin. God in His grace and in His mercy through His Spirit regenerates me. On the basis of that regeneration, then I repent and I believe the gospel. But regeneration proceeds repentance and belief. And to say that in the Southern Baptist Church at that point, in the South End of Louisville or in Lexington, Kentucky, that that was I mean that I mean, we're talking torches and pitchforks. Yeah. You were gonna burn the stake for being a witch or some yeah. sort of spirit. This was this was like straight up on the thunder of the barbarian, right? This is this is sorcery. Yeah. Who believes this? Yeah. And so the PCA, what I loved about the PCA was they didn't 
fight about it. It wasn't one of the problems I think with a lot of young guys in the twenty seven was they went into the church thinking, okay, I've got to convince my people that the doctrines of grace are real and true and biblical and that's what they should believe. And so instead of going and saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna preach the word of God and I'm gonna love the people and be careful of you went in almost with a sort of apologetic notion, saying, I'm going to convert them to this particular kind of soteriology. Well, you say that's what you went in and did? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I thought, I, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and part of it is, too, you know, when you come to the doctrines of grace, there's a part of you that just goes, oh, where have you been all my life? Right. Right? It's like when you meet your wife for the first time. I remember being a and I was like, oh, yeah. Now, that dog will hunt. And when I heard the doctrines of grace, a lot of things that didn't make sense just really fell into place for me. And then having heard Petrus preach, being influenced by by Mark, the Capitol Hill, the Nine Marks uh, outfit, all those things sort of coalesced, and I really thought, this is what they want me, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, And didn't never put the doctrines of grace in the context of kind of God's redemptive work in both Testaments. And so that was, I grew up in these in largely dispensational churches. So I was still kind of working out in my own mind, how do these two Testaments fit together? And, and how is there a, a coherence and a unity of the story instead of there are eight separate stories? And I kind of got to know which one I'm working in. Mm-hmm. And really, at the end of the day, a sermon on that, it's nice, but it's not really for Christians. Because it's not a part of the church age. And so trying to reconcile and harmonize all those things. And and is it is it is the Bible predominantly a, 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 a continuous story? Is there discontinuity in the story? I mean, what, do you, what do you do? How, how do you view it? And so in so many ways, making the move of the PCA did two things for me. One, you're presupposing Calvinism. Right? I don't get up in the pulpit on Sunday morning thinking, i got to make my people Calvinists. Because I don't. The Westminster Confession of Faith makes it pretty clear that God is sovereign in salvation. Uh, makes it pretty clear the order of Salutis. You know, we're not, we're not fighting about these issues. Even that, the abstract the principles that Southern Seminary holds to is clear on this thing. Yeah. From a doctrinal standpoint. Right, right. And, 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 there was this, and there really was this kind of discontinuity in, in the SBC. You're right, the abstract principles, um, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. There were all these historical things going on in the SBC that would lead you that way, but then you would get into a local church that had really been much more influenced by sort of the revivalism of the second way to Yeah, yeah. In which the job of the, the preacher, as Finney would say, uh, God hired him to, to argue his case for him. And now suddenly you have this whole conversation about meanings. And at this point, again, this is this is 20 years ago, uh, the influence of Billy Graham was still very keenly felt. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, we're, we're grateful for Dr. Graham, we're grateful for his legacy. And here was a man of integrity that wanted to see men and women and boys and girls who had never heard the gospel come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, which would say amen and celebrate that. But what, what the interesting thing was, a lot of Southern Baptist churches really viewed what was going on every week in the service to be sort of a mini Billy Graham crusade. Yeah. That was the model. It wasn't the idea of word and sacrament. These are God's called out ones gathering, coming together for the purpose of glorifying God. No, it was. It really was about, no, we're coming. And we want to bring our non-Christian friends so they can hear the gospel and they can get saved in the first place. Remember when I went to Auburndale 12 years ago, that that was one of the main criticisms I got when when I started preaching. And being the first non-expositional preacher to come to our church, that that was the criticism I got. They they almost didn't think what I was doing was preaching. Because what they understood preaching to be is what what the grand stood up and did. And so yeah, that, I think that's a common theme that even a lot of guys that I talk to have moved into Southern Baptist churches. Again, Billy Graham's influence uh, wonderful in so many ways, but this set the tone for the SBC in a lot in a lot of ways. So. When I was being ordained into, I got ordained by the Carlisle Baptist Church before I went to go preach at Orville. 
my ordination council was really unique in that you had, you had Tom Rainer, you had Paul House, uh, Dr. Muller was there, and then you had, you know, just your, your local gathering of deacons and Southern pastors. And a guy who was a retired pastor, good faithful man, was at Carlisle Baptist. And, and I'm getting all these, I'm getting all these, these fairly um, sort of high speed, finely nuanced, very articulate questions from, say, Dr. Muller and Dr. Rayner and Dr. House. And, and this gentleman, who's a retired minister, says, Kyle, I got two questions for you. Do you believe the Bible's true? Well, we just spent maybe 20 minutes right? establishing, right. yes, in, in, in terms of uh, inerrancy and inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration. Right? We just talked about all this. And now, you know the Bible's true? Yes. Are you a soul winner? That was it. That was it. That was those it. were the two questions. Yeah. And if you could affirm both of those things, and he literally just got sat back and said, well, it's all I got. I'm good. Both are important things. They are. They are. Amen. But the simplicity of it certainly says a lot. So. Well, and, and, yeah, and just sort of the minimalist view. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I, yes, we, we strive. I think we strive in our preaching. We strive in the shared gospel. We want, there's a fine line between being simple and being simplistic. And we want to be simple. We want to be, we certainly uh, want to be intelligible to the people to whom we speak. But there's a very, um, again, it's a really fine line between, hey, I'm trying to be simple, I'm trying to be, um, I want to be intelligible, between I'm being simplistic and I'm being overly minimalistic. Yeah. And that just requires a whole lot of commitment and a whole lot of discernment and having a whole lot of effort. And I think it's different for different dudes. I mean, I, I, I would presume to say that my, kind of what I've worked out internally as to, this is intelligibility, but this is being overly simplistic. I think it's different for everybody. Let's bring me to the present, Kyle. So you were at Tate's Creek. So I'm at we're sitting in Fremont, Nebraska, right, where right. you planted a church. You didn't hear Right. It. So I'm at Tate's Creek. Um, it's really hard. So the PCA went way more than ministers than many places for them to go. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of transferring my organization, which was horrible, um, as opposed to the, you know, the two hour. And it was interesting afterwards, after my Southern Baptist and my Floridian in HBC, why well, I had some of my deacons come out and say, Pastor, we're glad you the answers to those questions. We didn't know half those words those guys were saying. Mm -hmm. And so in their minds, my, my ordination interview was just brutal. But I'm telling you, it was, it was kindergarten compared to what the PCA does. Yeah. There are five exams, you take written exams, and then you have oral exams. And then you go before the entire presbytery and you give sort of summation of your views and you take exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith, or to the standards, you, you cite them, you defend them, uh, you, you take whatever questions from the floor people want to ask you. And that was a, that was a, an interesting process. I mean, at that point, I've been out of seminary about 12 years. Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking how much easier this would have been if I could have taken this you know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They wanted a theological paper. And they didn't need it. They're like, if you have like an exegesis paper so you can plug, well, mine's on like a like a three and a half inch floppy disk in like you know in like Word 2.0 or something. I mean, you can't even you can't even read it. Yeah. Who knows what's even on there? Like when I wrote it, you still had a little paper clip that would come over the chair at the bottom of Microsoft Word. It was a drive. Yeah, no, it's a drive. Nothing. We put it on the thumb drive. What? I don't think the floppy will convert to the thumb drive, right? So. Um, it was a really hard process. So in between, there was a small morality-based missions group that started out of Tate's Creek. Uh, it actually started out of Southland Christian and Tate's Creek Presbyterian, two guys, and they went another through the, uh, they actually met um, in the perspectives, of course, on the problem of the They both taught. And uh, so people claim to check that out and formed this organization called T-Formable. And they needed a guy who, had some pastoral experience, who was willing to travel and predominantly would work in East Africa. And we were doing work in, in Southern Sudan, working in Kenya. Would I be willing to go help work with, work with pastors? And that was, in a lot of ways, was one of the most formative ministry experiences I think I've had. I learned a lot about uh, 
eligibility. We'll learn a lot about contextualization. Not the kind of contextualization with the guys who were skinny jeans and, and sitting in coffee shops all day. Not that kind of contextualization. Not in East Africa. No, no, no. This was, this was, and I knew, and this is where I was really grateful for my, for my Taylor education, my Southern education. Because at that point, I mean, there were guys who were serious missiologists when I went to school with. I knew the stuff they had read, and I knew I had never read it. And so immediately I dove into this world of less Canadian, I dove into this, this kind of world of missiology, trying to figure out how do we make the gospel intelligible in a cross-cultural context? And how do we communicate in such a way so that the propositions of the Bible puts forward are going to be received and heard and can be can be responded to because they've actually been understood. And with oral culture learners, giving them a pamphlet written in English, uh, that's the Romans Revenge So how long did you do that work? I was there for, I was there for three years. So in, in the midst of that, that allowed me to transfer my ordination into the PCA. Because in the PCA, you can't just transfer with no call. You actually have something to do before the ordination. Mm -hmm. And so I was transferred to, to labor out of bounds. P4 Global, and they made sure that my labor would, would be in accordance with and not contrary to the Westminster standards. And so I got ordained, and in the midst of it, we came back with my 20 year high school reading, which I was in dreading. Because uh, as I said, you know, my head makes me in high school, I have 89 pounds. I had a lovely flowing blonde mullet uh, because I grew up rocking the three demands of local media. I've never heard that described in the same. same. Great. Like lovely, flowing. Lovely, lovely flowing mullet. Oh, it's, okay. It was beautiful. In fact, I, I, we, we lived here about a year. We were back in Fremont. I clearly don't have a mullet now. I have the middle-aged, bald head shape thing going on. And my daughter and I were going to the supermarkets, and I ran into a classmate of mine. We played baseball together, we played football together. He's now like a commander of the Navy. And Brandon's mom at the supermarket, and I'm talking to Pat, and she's like, oh, Kyle. He used to have such lovely long blonde hair, and it was curly in the, in the end, at the back, and in the end, and oh, it was just, he just had such pretty hair. And my daughter is about falling out in the aisle, mm -hmm. trying not to be rude and laugh out loud in his lady's face. And so for about two months, all I heard about was my lovely, flowy, curly blonde hair. Former. 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 Blonde hair, yeah. So, um, what were we even talking about? Oh, yeah, so, so I'm coming back from my high school reunion, which I'm driving, and the Lord really used it in a pretty surprising way. A lot of my friends growing up, Fremont, we've been driving around, and they drive down Military Avenue, and as we were coming into town, we passed three Lutheran churches. Yeah. And they're all, they're ELCA, they're Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Evangelical sort of misnomer. They're not evangelical in terms of any way that we would define evangelical yep. in, in any meaningful sense of the term. So there are, in our city, there are seven Lutheran churches. The Catholic Church in town claims half the households. Yeah. And, and you see, it, it looks like a cathedral. Yeah. We have a cathedral church in our city of 25,000 people. So I come back from my 25, from my 20 year high school reading. And friends of mine who had grown up in these churches and would have self-identified as Christians in high school are now nothing. They're agnostic, or they're a couple guys who are now Buddhist. Uh, one girl that I knew, uh, has become a woman. And what I realized at that point is there, there's a whole lot of difference between the Jesus that's left over in the liberal scholarship or the sort of works-based salvation that's presented via the Catholic Church. There's a whole lot of difference between those two things and the gospel. And so at this point, I'm, I'm out of the country and I live 100 days a year. I'm flying about 150,000 miles a year. I'm flying on coach, which is just brutal. I'm not built for coach, even on a bigger airplane. I just doesn't. I, I don't get on the plane, I just apologize to the person next to me. Especially if I was coming home and hadn't had a real shower in about two weeks, I would just nice. start off with an apology and hand over all my free drink coupons. You know, here, maybe if you're half lit, the smell won't be quite as bad. Mm -hmm. It'll be better for all of us. It's sort of interesting to take on evangelism. Um, so I remember hearing that and then thinking to myself, okay, Lord, I'm really, I'm flying all over the world, starting to shout in our family. I mean, Dad can't be gone. 
right? And not have an impact. So the fact that we could do it for three years is really a testimony to Amy. Yeah. And and, um, and her commitment and her calling and just her skill and just being awesome as a, as a mom. But it's starting to show in our family. I remember thinking, okay, what I'm doing is uh, other tribes are going to be in middle school. What about my tribe? Yeah. And so I was actually back here for a while. I was preaching at uh, one of the evangelical churches here in town. That actually is where the evangelical restaurant It was their missions month, and some friends from high school from that church were supporting us to keep more financially. And so I was back when I was preaching, and I was actually talking with a PCA church up around Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They were looking for a pastor. Uh, their search community had come down to share me. And it was, it was, you know, the next trip was going to be Amy and I were flying out to go and have a call and then to meet with the Presbyterian and get the world's world. Because at this point, I'm ordained. It's just transfer my ordination and I'm ready to go. And in that weekend, a bunch of people at this church or came to me and said, okay, so you're, you're an ordained teaching on the PC now, right? Yeah. So that means that you could plant a church anywhere you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, Presbyterians can't really do anything. Yeah. Kind of, that's not how we roll. And so I said, well, the extent that you can do kind of what you want, which is not much, you could, in theory, plant these things for free money. And they were very quick to say, oh, so so you could plant a PCA church in free And I was really focused on the fact that the search community was saying, we're not wanting to blow it, and you know, wanting to be this affable, winsome guy that clearly they want to hire as an expansion. And I was driving back to the airport. My parents were taking me back to the airport. They still lived in town. And I recounted the conversation, and it hit me that I had had that same conversation about planning a PCA church in Fremont about six different people. So I called, uh, I called my friend, one of the guys who had been here, and just said, "Man, what's you know what's up? What's going on? Why, why am I getting this question?" And he knew a little bit, but not necessarily the whole story. And then another friend of mine, uh, he ended up being one of our core families, a guy in the airport, and called Eric. And his wife and I grew up together. We've been in the same age group. Called Eric and just said, dude, what, what's, what's going on here? Why did I get this question so much? And then there's this long pause, and then he sort of just kind of backed the truck up in terms of what was going on in that church. It wasn't necessarily healthy. Wasn't good. There were just some real, there were some real issues, and they were as best they could trying to address them. But understood, there was really this kind of um, there was this kind of fundamental sort of cultural difference in terms of what the, what's the church supposed to do? Is it just supposed to be a holy huddle, or are we supposed to, in some way, shape, or form, be engaging in our culture, our and we as tribal members, are we supposed to be engaging our tribe? with the gospel in a way that's intelligible because we want to see the gospel planted. Not because we're trying to necessarily see our organization get bigger than other organizations, but because fundamentally we want to see the gospel planted and established in this place and then see what kind of church grows up around the gospel being planted. Uh, those, the, the boys, they come to Canada, they, they had seen what we did and how we did it, they got a taste of it. Uh, some other folks in our corporate I'd actually gone and visited Virginia Presbyterian University. So we turned down a solid, established church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to do something I swore I would never do, come back to my hometown. If you counted my family, we had five families, we had $35,000. And that was in July of 2010. We moved back to Fremont with Planet Grace. We had about 20 people when we started. Uh, this spring before summer hit, we were right around 150 people in Sunday Wow. And so, you know, what the Lord has done in five years, I, I, you know, we joke, and we're only half joking. The way I'll say it is, Jesus is building his church, we're just trying to screw up. Yeah. Our job is just to not get in the way of how we're seeing how the Holy Spirit is planning the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. And so we're sitting. We're sitting in this, this beautiful, new, renovated building that you guys, as a church, just bought and renovated here right in downtown Fremont. And you just had your five-year anniversary in the plan of this church. And 
I just preached in this church yesterday, and it was, for me, I've known you for so long, and known the story that you just told, and all the Lord's done. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk more about the lessons you learned through a lot of those difficult years, but, but it's just encouraging for me to see where you're at, and see you flourishing the way you are, and see the way the Lord's blessing your ministry, and, and all that's happening uh, in this place. So, uh, thank you for sharing that, about your journey up to this point, and if you can, in a future podcast, we're going we're gonna to talk about the book that is based on this whole uh, account that you just given, and hopefully those lessons will be helpful to, to pastors. But that's the end of this episode of uh, Trench Talk. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk more with Kyle, and uh, let me flesh out these lessons that he learned in the midst of all those difficult churches, and everything that he went through, and what the Lord taught him and brought him to this place. So, of flourishing and having known him for 15 years, this is a very different man than I knew 15 years ago. And, uh, and I think they'll share some of those uh, lessons that the Lord taught him that brought him to this uh, this mature place. So Kyle, thanks for sharing all those things with us and being with us here. No, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Trench Talk. We'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you might have for us. So to get in touch with us, you can email us at brian at practicalshepherding.com or you can contact us through Facebook or Twitter. You can find out more about Practical Shepherding at our website. At the website, you can find our blog and you can also find information about articles and books that we've published. You can also find out information about our regional workshops where we engage pastors face-to-face to equip them for the trench work of ministry. So until next time, may the God of peace, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you as you labor in the trenches of pastoral ministry. Thank you.